0: Oh, good evening to each of you here. This is like family. And the Bible says where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, there is freedom. I hope we can have a, a degree of that here this evening. Without the Holy Spirit and without His presence, His guidance, and His blessing, um, this occasion would be in vain. But I don't think it'll be in vain. I've been looking forward to being here myself. and I don't know if you came with your cup empty or half full or running over already. Or what all the Lord's been doing in your life. So, you know, we we make preparation and we I've I've studied on this topic for not a real long time. Abraham, the righteous father, and Isaac, the promised son, tomorrow, and then Jacob, the chosen nation. But another thing about preparing to to talk or speak or whatever we we do, the efforts we go to, there's a verse that says the preparations of of man, the preparations of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is of the Lord. And so I came prepared to some extent, but I don't know what I'm going to say. Jonathan, you were wondering what I'm going to say. Uh, I hope to say some things here this evening. But I hope there's some freedom in how we go about it, and um, because the thing is, when you when you get into a subject and you and you study it and you look into it, first you're thinking what what to say, what shall I say, and then after a while you're saying, well, what what do I leave out? You know, it becomes a, a problem a little bit the other way around. So, um, for the sake of time constraints you know we we can't talk about it so much and i guess there's there's some value in just leaving some for the the spirit of the lord to pick up in your in your thoughts and in your minds even though i don't talk about it specifically here tonight so if you want to begin here in chapter 12 I I thought of two principles I'd like to bring out in how to look at our study, and this applies to all three of these topics. And one is Galatians 4, verse 24, where it talks about these things are an allegory. It's talking about Ishmael and Isaac. These things are an allegory. And so as we study the Old Testament, pretty much all the Old Testament is that. It is a story of the people of Isaac's descendants and Ishmael's descendants, I guess, to some extent. It's not just an allegory. Some people say, well, the Bible, the Old Testament, that's all it was. It didn't actually happen. It was just an allegory. Some people might think that. But to me, I would, you know, to me it actually happened. And that's the miracle that these events happened in in time and space in history and God still used the things that happened to teach us, to give us some imagery and and concepts that we look at how these things happened and it helps us to see the things in our own life. A second principle is uh, Zechariah 4, verse 10. It says, For who hath despised the day of small things? Who hath despised the day of small things? Other versions would say, Do not despise. Do not count lightly or disparage the things of that may seem small. You know, In, in a sense, we all had small beginnings. In the natural... And, and maybe in, in spiritual ways. You know, the, the Holy Spirit is often spoken of as, as a fire. And a fire can, can be a very small flame, start out very inconspicuously or innocently enough. I remember there was a time, about 20 years ago, we had a old wood stove and in the shop, and I would kind of feed that thing every once in a while. Well, it had gone out pretty much, and I thought, "Well, I'm going to put some wood in there and just see if it takes off." So I filled it up with wood, and it it didn't go. It uh, it wasn't something that had to be, but it was kind of nice to have have that warmth in there when you'd walk in. And uh, I kind of forgot about it, and a couple days went by, and I think it was three days later, that stove took off and went with that wood I'd put in it. It always kind of amazed me that it could sit there that long and, and not do anything, and then it took off. Surprising what a spark can do, or a hot coal can do. Well... You know, Adam had a small beginning, Noah had a small beginning there at the end of the flood, Abraham had a small beginning, the sons of Jacob in Egypt, they had a small beginning, and God took all those things, all those instances of that and, and made a, big, a bigger thing out of it. Now, I think about, you know, where did Abraham come from? Where, you know, how did this happen? So you have from from Adam to to Noah, you have ten generations. And in that, you have all those men, Adam, Seth, Enosh. All those names have a meaning. I don't know how many of you knew this or... Uh, but recently I was made aware that the the meaning of those names all the way down to Noah, in order, if you put them together, it forms a sentence. Has anybody ever heard that theory? So in other words, Adam means man, Seth means appointed, Enosh means mortal, Canaan means sorrow, Mahalala, the blessed God, and so on. If you put that all together, it says, Man appointed mortal sorrow, the blessed God shall come down, teaching his death shall bring the despairing rest. And somebody put that together and, and said, Look at that pattern of those names. So when we know names had meaning in the Bible, people were named a certain thing because of, of the meaning of that name. Also, that was true with, with places in the Bible. So that was interesting to me, and I didn't look into it real much, but if you never heard that before, uh, it might surprise you. But I've seen where others have have taken that theory and applied it to farther on down the line, even down to Jesus Christ, through that lineage, the meaning of names, and tried to put that together and found patterns in that. So if that's of interest to you, um, study it out some more. So then from Shem to... Abraham, we have ten more generations. <clears throat> It'd be interesting to um, to have a chart and, and show all that genealogy. I have a paper here that I I printed out. And you probably can't see it from back there, but you have Japheth's descendants, Ham descendants, even some descendants from the godly line, Eber. Um, was part of the lineage of Abraham. He had a son Joktan, and then so you had a list of, of uh, other people, and you get down to Terah. You have he had three sons, Haran and Nahor, but the the royal lineage of uh, Abraham and Christ is in red. And so, as I looked at that, you have all those other names. And then you have that little thread of red going down through those names. It's like, what's God trying to accomplish here? Is this just random stuff? And it's interesting because it it lines up with with how God does other things. We we see our... um, of the world in which we live, this, this little planet we live on Earth, out in space, out in just the middle of nowhere you could say. And we see the, the other planets of the solar sy- system that make up what we know about the created world. And it's like here we are kind of all by ourselves and all these other planets and stars and galaxies and you know, they don't really mean anything. It's just us. It's you know and it's kind of that way with how God brought down through a particular line of people. And he chose Abraham. He chose these men. Um, There's a little bit of of wonderment and mystery in that. You know, it's kind of like a screening process. God is screening out hopefully the bad. He can do a lot with with our weaknesses. But we hear about this thing called generational curses. I don't know if you believe in that or think it's a thing, whereas traits or undesirable things come, come through our, our DNA, um, just through our lineage. I wonder if, if that is true, then possibly it could also be good things come down through a person's lineage. And maybe that's what God was looking for and trying to bring that through with his chosen people. Well, you know, Abraham had children, different children. His father had three sons, only one was chosen. Abraham had like eight children, I think, through Keturah, and one from Hagar, and so on. Eight sons, but only one of them was chosen. Isaac, and then so Isaac had two sons. Only one of them was chosen. And so you finally get down to Jacob. Well, Jacob had 12 sons from different women, but from that point on, they were all in in the royal line of God's chosen people, with the exception of, of Jacob's daughter Dinah. But as you, as you look at, at the way God put emphasis on the lineage, it was always through the man. So um, the story of Dinah was, was kind of a disappointment. But even if she had uh, descendants, it, it makes me wonder if they would have been part of a, the true lineage because it seemed like it all depended on the man. Well, you know, the Bible speaks of of these three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, very often together in a group. And I might just draw your attention to a case or two of this in in Exodus 2.24. It says, God remembered their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. You could say these are the big three. At one time we had that, we used that term for the the automakers, the American automakers, the big three. Well, this is kind of what you have with Abraham, Isaac, and Japheth. Now, the next chapter, 3, verse 6, where he appears to Moses, he says, Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. There's something just big and majestic about God identifying with these men. And I think what it says is God is willing to, he wants to interact with people. It's not just him by himself, but he wants to be in partnership. He wants to be known not just by his name, but he identifies with these three men very often in Scripture. Is there a reason for that? i thought of of maybe a couple things. I might mention one just now. And that is this principle that God has, has laid out, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word is established. Maybe that's why God started out with these three, as the pillars. Two or three witnesses. It's funny that Jacob's name was changed to Israel, but he was still known as Jacob when he was lumped in with those uh, other two. So let's look at chapter 12 here. It says, Now the Lord had said unto Abraham, Now the Lord has said, like, a uh, past tense. It, it just struck me that this, this is where the story of Abraham begins. Well, it, I guess his name comes up a little bit beforehand in, in the genealogies. But this is the first impression that we get that the Lord is calling Abram. And if, if I get his name mixed up with Abraham before he was really Abraham, well, that's just the way it is. I, I probably will mispronounce other names along the way as well. But his name was Abram, and his name had meaning, and his name was changed as well. And so and I think we we'll understand it. It's, if, if he's still Abram, I call him Abraham, just bear with me on that. But those, those two names do have distinct meanings. Abraham meaning a father of multitude, a, a father of many, a father of a nation. But it started out kind of in a, in a small way. No big fanfare, no big um, announcement other than it says the Lord had said. That's like past tense. So apparently something had happened back there and we didn't even hear about it. And so now Abraham's responding to the Lord. Verse 4, so Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken unto him. And Lot went with them, and Abraham was seventy and five years old when he parted out of Haran. And he took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their substance that they had, and the souls that they had gotten in Haran. And they went forth to go into the land of Canaan. And into the land of Canaan they came. You know, the land of Canaan wasn't Canaan cursed. Didn't Noah curse Canaan. And because of Abraham's presence in the land, and because of all the plans that God had for that land of Canaan, we think of, of the land of Canaan now in a in a positive light, in a as a good thing. I am bound for the land of Canaan. Well that that just spoke to me in, in that God can take something that is not desirable, and because of righteousness, and because of people, of his people, he can turn that into a a better outcome, a good thing, a positive thing. It's a little bit that way with the cross. Jesus took that symbol, that emblem, that cross, that there's nothing good about it, and now to a a large extent it's celebrated. Well, I thought the way we'd kind of look at this is is just to go through it um, chapter by chapter and and I'll just try to pick out things that have stood out to me about this event and about this story. There is a progression to God's involvement with Abraham. He had spoken to Abraham. He had said to Abraham there in verse 1, So now in verse 7, it says the Lord appeared unto Abraham and said, unto thy seed will I give this land. And and he reveals a little more, and his presence becomes a little more uh, pronounced and intense. I mean, it would be enough for me if I heard the voice of God. Maybe there's people that have have heard God's voice. Uh, I never have, audibly, but... I'm not saying it doesn't happen. If it did happen, it would be, to me, it would be somewhat awesome. Well, Abraham already had that, and now God appears to him. And so it's getting it's getting a little more intense. To the extent that Abraham now builds an altar unto the Lord, who appeared unto him. He makes a, uh, a tangible a physical thing that he can commemorate this experience, I think. Besides an altar, it it symbolizes uh, a willingness to sacrifice and a a willingness to devote oneself to the Lord. And he called upon the name of the Lord. There in verse 8. He called upon the name of the Lord. You know, I think encounters with God, one way to look at this is, is when we have an encounter, however that would be in our life. It, you know, it drives us on to more and greater uh, things for God, thirsting after God and a hunger for Him, uh, calling upon His name. There was there was some people in the in the book of Acts, I think, that said they were addicted to the gospel. You know, this thing, if you put your mind to it and, and you just revel in it, the things of God, it, it can it can start to absorb your life. To where you say, Well, to what extent do I keep pursuing God? You know, if I had my way, I I would like to study the Bible every day, four or five hours a day. Um, Where do we draw the line in there? Well, in this chapter, it's not always it's not always roses, because we talk about in verse um, eleven. I'm sorry, 10, there was a famine in the land. And Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was grievous in the land. So to escape the famine, uh, Abram goes to Egypt. I don't know if God commanded him to do this or not. Um, But I think the lesson there is, you know, there, there might be practical reasons as to, to why we do things. If, if we don't hear a word from God, maybe we just have to, to do, make a decision in the absence of that, and, and that's what Abraham decided to do. And, and before he did this, he was, he was thinking about, you know, what's he going to do with his wife, Sarah, because she's a beautiful woman, and, and the men of other places are going to, to want her. Um, his asset kind of became a a problem. I guess when he got married, he thought a beautiful woman, Sarah, was was an asset. She was a fair woman to look upon, verse 11. But then that became his problem uh, in consideration of traveling and and what this would mean. And um, later on, we, we find out that Abraham had made this decision that this was how he was going to approach the situation. He had schemed that he was just going to say, she's my sister. Well, in a way you could say that didn't turn out good. It, uh, with, with the king of Egypt, he, he, uh, he kind of ran into problems. And it says, the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah Abram's wife. You know, when uh, Abram went down into Egypt, I thought there were some parallels there with the way he, with him and and Moses, and the way they went to Egypt. Both went there to escape the famine. When you think about the sons of Jacob, out of which Moses came, both of them were deceptive to some extent with Pharaoh. Uh, Abram said, she's my sister. And Moses told Pharaoh, let us go into the three days' journey to worship the Lord. He didn't say we wanted to leave entirely. But both of those statements were partly true, and in the case of Moses, that's what the Lord had told Moses to say. So we can't really fault Moses. God plagued the king of Egypt, in in Abraham's case, for for Sarah's sake. And then God also plagued Egypt for the children of Israel's sake. Pharaoh sent Abram away with much goods. In verse 16. And Pharaoh sent the children of Israel away with much goods, if you read that in Exodus 12. Both left Egypt with silver and gold. Both were commanded to leave, and you know, somewhat in a hasty manner, it's like, get out of here, we're done with you. And so, when you look at that, it's like, there's, there's some similarities between that, and I don't know if that really has a meaning or not, besides it's the same God behind the things that are happening. In chapter 13, then, it says uh, Abraham leaves Egypt. I don't know if the, if the plague was over at that time or not. And he goes to Bethel. He returns... To a place where his tent had been at the beginning it says there in verse 3, 13 verse 3 and maybe there's, there's some, a lesson there for us if, if we get caught in, in a bunch of rigmarole of life sometimes we just need to go back to um, the basics, go back to where we can hear the voice of God maybe a simpler environment and again, call upon the name of the Lord. Um, I'm thinking in the case of Isaac, there was a famine as well. And God told Isaac not to go to, to Egypt. So I don't know if, if God kind of removed his favor from Abraham in that situation. We aren't told whether he did that under God's direction or not. It seemed like he, he kind of prospered from that experience coming out of Egypt. And it was a blessing on him from that, at least in the material sense. And so we get into the next chapter. It says their substance was great, so they they could not dwell together, him and and Lot. And that leads to that story where... uh, Lot and Abram had to separate, go separate ways. And we see Abram's graciousness in that, his kindness, his, his, his just, he was a man of character and, and let Lot choose. Uh, but I would note that the strife was not between Abraham and Lot. It was between the herdsmen of Lot and the herdsmen of Abraham. So Abraham was wise. He saw that, you know, this could lead to, bigger problems so let's take care of the problem before it gets out of hand Lot chose the well watered plain of of, uh, I guess it says the plain of Jordan there in, in verse 10 this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah but this must have been an attractive place it says it was even as the garden of the Lord and so that's where Lot went and he chose that land, I think, for, for logical reasons. And it was, yeah, toward, toward uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, but I think Lot probably did that innocently enough. Um, I don't know exactly what all his, his reasoning was. I think he likely did it with, with pretty much an innocency. And, and probably Lot was remembering, you know, all the good of the land that they had received from Egypt, and it seemed like he just kind of liked to be in near the city. And so maybe it was just more of a, of a preference, a personal preference of, of whether he felt secure near men or, or away from men. We have those differences among ourselves sometimes. Or some of us are country people, others are like the city, but the, um, there was some, you could say there was some supernatural increase that they had received from these uh, outlying cities. Well, out of that, you would say that, maybe say that, think that Abraham was sort of a loser. Um, the weaker, you, you know, the just, if, if you don't, Stand up for your rights, that's what happens. You just sort of get the tail end of things. But, you know, who does God speak to afterwards? Who does God begin to commune with and to invite, to lift up their eyes and look from the place where thou art, northward and southward and eastward and westward? For all the land which thou seest to thee will I give it unto thy seed forever, arise, walk through the land in the length of it and the breadth of it for I will give it unto thee and Abraham removed his tent and came and dwelt in the plain of Mamre which is in Hebron and there built an altar unto the Lord God's blessing was on Abraham and I don't know the geographies and where all the the, uh, the land was that God has promised, I can't keep that in my head Too good. It'd be fun to have a map to really see how that was. But Abraham showed righteousness, he showed character. I think in many ways he was a father to Lot. Um, Out of righteousness flows practical uh, benefits. You know, a soft answer turneth away wrath. Even, even if the person is not a Christian. And so there are advantages to righteousness. But I think one of the biggest advantages with Abraham and with all these righteous people was God's favor. Look at how often it, it talks about um, how God gave his people favor in the sight of the other people around about them and showed them his favor. I think it's something we can pray for as as Christians in our land, in our day and time, is the favor of God. We never know what all God is preventing or or doing behind the scenes in our behalf. And that's why I don't like to criticize the patriarchs for their mistakes or to think that here's a mistake they made, so that's, we got to avoid that, and they, were, they had a, a problem there. Um, I'm, I'm a little bit slow to do that because they were under God's favor, and I'm like, a friend of God is a friend of me. I'm in, I'm in with it, and there's probably more I can learn about what they did right than what they did wrong. Abraham was, was kind, he was devout, he was loyal to, to even Lot. And you see in that next chapter where there were some kings that went out and captured Lot and carried him away. Uh, Abraham found out about it and he went and rescued Lot and brought, brought him back. So Abraham had, had some strength, he had some power. It wasn't just possessions, but he was, he was able to go out and rescue a Lot and bring him back. In chapter 15, we begin to, again, progress with God's promises to Abraham. He says in verse 5, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto them, so shall thy seed be. In verse 6, he believed in the Lord and he counted to him for righteousness. Um, Behold the stars. You know, I think there's times that would be good for us to do that and to meditate a little bit and reflect on the heavens. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament showeth his handiwork. That's, that's good admonition. Um, to do that. And God was saying that, you know, as many as those stars are will be your children. And I think maybe there was also a benefit in looking towards the heavens just to realize the scope of God's creation. The the untold distances to the stars, and yet we can see them. Um, it's just, it's to me, it's a way to just escape sometimes from the, the little stupid things about life. And just to gaze at the heavens, at least on a clear night. And let that speak to you. Let the glory of God speak to us through his creation in that way. Well, with Abraham, I, one of the big things with Abraham is... And his righteousness. It was a theological righteousness. It was a standing that we have in the sense that God put his mark on Abraham in verse 6. Because of his faith, he believed in the Lord and he counted for righteousness. You know, I think there's a sense in which God is writing a book of remembrance. There's this... This is talked about in Malachi 3.16. For those that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name, God heard and hearkened, and he writes some things down in his book. I don't know what he's writing, but I I hope I'm in that book of the things he's writing. For those that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name, Abraham certainly had um, much that God could write about. being counted righteous before God. There's that principle by grace, not deserving. And it's in the New Testament, Romans chapter 4, verse 8. It says, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. God makes that decision. Um, based on theological correctness, you could say, based on faith. It's a challenge and it's a blessing. Well, that chapter goes on to speak of a little bit of a mysterious thing that happened. But God not only established promises with Abraham, he's starting to establish something he calls a covenant. A covenant is on a little different level, I think, than a, than a promise. Ishmael received promises but he did not receive a covenant. And there was this thing where they had these animals and they cut them in half or something. It's, the whole thing was kind of spooky. It happened at night. If you read that chapter, it says, A deep sleep fell upon Abram, and, lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. And God did this thing. He spoke to him. He, he talked about how the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And then it came to pass that when the sun went down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking furnace and burning lamp that passed between those pieces. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying, so on, I'll give you this land. He repeats. And he, he probably expounds on the promise and the covenant. But there was something about that event that God made that happen and there was some significance to it. A deep sleep fell on Abraham. I don't, I don't know why he was sleeping, but I think in the presence of, of a sacred moment, and you take the, where Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and it says the disciples were sleeping but maybe that was a supernatural sleep. Jesus seemed to wish they would support him and help him. But I remember the words of a song. It says, "Twas too sacred there for mortal eyes to see." When he prayed to his dear Father, "Take this cup from me," his disciples also sleepy seemed to be, for that scene was far too sacred for their eyes to see. I wonder if that a little bit of that was going on here with with God, and with his covenant that he established. Even though it was the old covenant, I think it has significance for today. And I like our new covenant. I like the allegory of Ishmael and and, and Isaac representing the old covenant and the new covenant. Well, we have a lot of ground we haven't covered yet this evening. I debated whether to talk a little bit about everything or talk a lot about a few things. We have the difficulty with Sarah being barren and and not having children. You know, why was that such a problem with these patriarchs? I think all three of them had the problem with Their wives not bearing. Uh, Isaac prayed for his wife. Jacob prayed for his favored wife, Rachel. She finally had children. But I'm just looking at a verse here in uh, chapter 18. Verse 14, it says, Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the time appointed, I will return unto thee according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a, a child, a son specifically um, you know that whole thing with Hagar it was, it was kind of a disappointment and the Lord didn't seem too bothered by it he said I, I will bless Ishmael, he, he'll be a nation too, and, and I kind of get aggravated every time I see something good about Ishmael because I know in the back of my mind how much problem he, he caused. But if God wanted that for an allegory, and that's the word he used in, in Galatians 4.24, then maybe there was something about that that we can benefit from in, our, in the way we look at, at the things of God. And the people of Ishmael are still persecuting the people of of Isaac. Um, If nothing else, it just serves to to show us that the Bible is is true. After all these hundreds and thousands of years, um, it helps establish in my mind the truth of the Bible. You know, Abraham interceded for Lot in that situation with Sodom and Gomorrah. And and I th- if it wasn't for that, I don't know if, if Lot would have survived. I wonder sometimes. Because it said after God took care of that business, it said he remembered Lot. Or he remembered Abraham. Chapter 19, verse 29. And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham. I didn't say remembered Lot. He remembered Abraham because Abraham had done all that to intercede. And I think that's why God was, was asking himself, should I hide this thing from Abraham? Because he knew Abraham would intercede. And when God's people intercede, God is obligated. I think to some extent, he obligates himself to, to hear that prayer. And since, since Sodom just it needed to go, it was a problem, and God had, had already determined this is what he's going to do, maybe God was saying, well, do I really want to, to bring Abraham into this because I know he's, he's a righteous man, he's going to intercede for Lot, and then what, how am I going to take care of Lot? Well God did take care of a lot. He, he he brought him out of that city. Um that that's a, a story in itself and it it spoke to me that we have a place in interceding one for another as as people of God in, in the in the time we live and in our churches. Um, it goes a long way to do that. Prayer and supplication on behalf of other people. In um, in chapter uh, twenty three, Sarah passes away. And I like I like Sarah because she is the only she is the only parent of the patriarch, that her sole contribution uh, as far as her offspring was the chosen line and only the chosen line through Isaac. In other words, Abraham had other children. Um, Isaac and Rebekah both had two sons that one of them wasn't. And of course, Jacob—he was getting pretty close to it. I guess you could say Dinah was was not one of his uh, chosen lineage. But the problem I have with Joseph is he had all those all those sons from different wives, and that doesn't sit very good with me, even though God allowed it. And um, God actually blessed that situation amazingly. Um, it said, you know. We know that Jacob favored uh, Rachel. And when God saw that and that Leah was not favored, it said he blessed Leah. So how can you say that, that God's blessing was not on those, those uh, multiple lives when you read that kind of thing in Scripture? And so I, it's hard to know what kind of standard to hold those people to, in relation to the standard we hold ourselves to. But, you know, we can only go by what the Bible says. And and Sarah died. She's the only woman in Scripture that lists the age of her death, if I understand right. Um, 125 years old, verse 1 there. And I think about this whole chapter is devoted to Abraham finding a burial ground for his wife. And he goes to the inhabitants of that land, the children of Heth, and he's very cordial to them. He bows himself to the people of the land, even to the children of Heth. Likewise, they did the same. They were very kind and cordial to him. And he requested of them uh, to be able to buy a burial plot to bury Sarah. Uh, he entreated them to do that. the The whole chapter speaks to me of just the dignity uh, that that uh, those who have departed deserve. Uh, the respect we we give to them. And he bought this land. Now they were willing to give it to him. If you look at that chapter, in verse eleven, the. Um, the cave of Machpelia. Um, And the man that owned it was this Ephron of the son of Zoar. He was a very nice man. He offered to give it to him. But Abraham wanted to pay for that land. And I think he was was smart in doing that. Even though they were cordial. And some say, well, this fellow wanted to give it to him so that he could come back later and say, uh, that's really my land, you don't own it. So he would come back and take it. I don't. I don't sense that. I don't pick it up from the, uh, from the attitude here. But it could have come to that, and I think Abraham was was wise for two reasons. He established his true ownership of that burial plot in a in a righteous legal way. You could say it wasn't haphazardly. And principle number two is found in something David did in, in 2 Samuel 24, 24. It says, Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God, of that which doth cost me nothing. In that account, we we understand you know, that, that David built an altar there and offered it to the Lord on behalf of a plague that he kind of had a part in, and so maybe he felt responsible. But I think the conclusion, and the thing that spoke to me, was that God once to properly own us, his property. He bought and purchased and redeemed us back from the enemy. And in the case of Abraham, he he was in line to possess the land anyway, but here he bought the land. And... In the case of Lot, he offered the nice land to Lot. But here, Abraham, he picks what he wants. He picks, I believe, a favored spot, the the thing that he had his eye on. He chose it, not for selfish reasons, I think, but for noble reasons. We see how Abraham, before he dies, he does what he can to provide a wife for Isaac, uh, a worthy wife, he said, do not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan but to return to my to my kindred in in chapter 24 he says verse 4, but thou shalt go into my country and to my kindred and take a wife unto my son Isaac and he put his servant in charge of doing this We don't know for sure the name of the servant, but some would say it was Eliezer. And um, <clears throat> that kind of gets into another story of, of Isaac. I might talk about that a little more tomorrow, but this this servant said, you know, if the woman is, is uh, not willing to follow me, then what do I do? And, and Abraham uh, gave some instruction concerning that. I think there's a there's a principle there that applies to a higher a higher reality in our life <clears throat> in chapter twenty five we have the death of Abraham um, verse seven and eight. And these are the days of the years of Abraham's life, which he lived, one hundred and threescore and fifteen years, that's 175 years, that Abraham gave up the ghost and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years and was gathered to his people. As you read that, I I, I sense no hint of of, uh, sorrow or despair or, or loss. He lived a rich life. He was gathered to his people. He had done his duty. He had fulfilled his calling. He was a man of contentment. A, a man who who never hesitated to obey God. We don't see any hesitancy when he was called by God to do a thing. It's just like a robot. He did it. Even Moses would not quite that way. And the Bible says he staggered not at the promises of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. So may we believe and receive the promises of God, the things he has said concerning himself. The things he has said and established concerning his son. And even as those old people, you know, they were... I've talked about how it seemed like if God wanted this to happen, why were the women barren and had all this delay? But in the same way, uh, Jesus was... It took him a while to get here too. There was some delay there. And there's some principles and, and patterns... I think, to me, it serves to help us realize that God does have a plan. God has a purpose. And it might take a while for it to happen. Our duty is to walk in faith.